From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. A very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Father Wade Menezes is in the house, and we're going to try to empty out this mailbag. It took Tom Price, Michael McCall, and Charles Beery to drag that mailbag down the steps. It's getting too full, and we're going to try to make it a little easier to carry back up the steps when we're finished here uh, recording this particular program. So we won't be taking your phone calls today, but if you would like to send us an email to openline at EWTN.com, we'd be happy to consider that for a future mailbag edition of Open Line Tuesday. Our host, as he is every single Tuesday on EWTN's Open Line, Father Wade Menezes, how are you? Well, Jack, I'm very, very angry today. Just, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where, where are you? I am in California. It, it sounds like you're here, but you're really not. Correct. Well, when this is being played for our listeners, I will be in California because it will be March 2nd. And I will have just finished speaking at a spiritual warfare conference in Los Altos. That oh, that's said, why you're mad. Right, right. No, angry, angry, angry. Angry, I'm sorry. But right now, as I'm recording this mailbag show with you, I'm in my beloved old Kentucky home. Which is going to be, cl- uh, from a climate standpoint, uh, a stark contrast to where you'll be when the show airs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly right, by about 75 degrees. <laughs> yeah, what's 75 degrees between between friends? <laughs> so you mentioned in, in jest that you were angry today, and your uh, springboard topic is going to talk and try to educate us a little bit about uh, some aspects of anger. That's right. That's right. The emotion of anger. huh? Anger in general is an emotional uh, sense or displeasure, and usually antagonism, we could say, aroused by a real or apparent injury that one has received. And I don't mean a physical injury. I mean any kind of injury. Uh, uh, hurt mentally, uh, uh, hurt spiritually, whatever. It could be a, with a relationship with another. The anger can be either passionate or non-passionate, depending on the degree to which the emotions are excited. That is, strongly in one case, or mildly in the other case. Remember, as a passion, emotion, or feeling, anger is neutral in and of itself. You have to know what the anger's end object is in order to make a moral judgment of it as to whether it is just anger or unjust anger. Uh, So passionate anger can be just or unjust. Uh, Passionate anger is a strong emotional displeasure, but even passionate anger is not necessarily sinful provided the reaction is directed only against the guilty party and its vehemence is in proportion to the object and circumstances involved. Moreover, to be licit or morally lawful, passionate anger must not blind a person's reason or place one in danger of overstepping prudent limits of inflicting justifiable punishment. Moreover, as a long Excuse me, moreover, as long as passionate anger is independent of one's will, that is, not deliberately induced, it is not of itself sinful. There is an obligation, however, to repress a strong impulse to anger, either when the passion is aroused beyond what the provocation deserves, or when the emotions are so impetuous that one loses one's temper, quote, end quote. This would be unjust anger. 
to consent to an immoderate outburst of anger that vents itself in the irascible words or actions is normally a venial sin. It becomes a mortal sin when what is said or done is very offensive and harmful. It is also considered grave matter when the anger takes the form of conscious revenge. So righteous or just anger uh, can be said to be justifiable indignation. It is permissible and even laudable when accompanied by a reasonable desire to inflict justifiable and prudent punishment. Christ himself was filled with righteous or just anger against the vendors in the temple, that is, the money and cattle changers there, who had desecrated the house of God and made it into a den of thieves, Matthew chapter 21. Such anger is allowable only if it tends to punish those who deserve punishment, but only according to the proper measure of their guilt and not beyond that, and with the sincere intention to redress what harm may have been done or to correct the wrongdoer. Otherwise, the anger can be considered uh, sinfully excessive. The necessary provision is always that there is no tinge of hatred toward and no desire for revenge of the one who made you angry. Uh, And lastly, demonic anger. Demonic anger is specifically anger with God, which is the foundation for the sin of blasphemy against God. It is called demonic because that is how the evil spirits are believed to have reacted toward the divine justice of God for having condemned them to eternal punishment after they willfully chose to not serve God. And so, uh, again, anger is an emotion, but in and of itself, uh, it, it, it's, it's neutral. It's neither good nor evil. You have to know what, what its end is to make a Uh, a a prudent judgment of it, whether it's just or unjust anger. For example, uh, when you come home from work and you find a thief in your house, uh, you have every right to be angry. In fact, you'd be silly if you weren't angry at that scenario, okay? Or are you angry because you came home from work and you found out that your spouse made liver and onions for supper and you're not a great liver and onions fan. Uh, that would be un, unjustifiable anger or unjust anger. I, th- those are you know, kind of silly examples, but I think they get the point across. You, you, the passions, emotions, and feelings are neutral in and of themselves. They're neither good nor uh, bad. You have to know what each one's uh, end object is to make a moral judgment of it. So Psalm 37, Jack, tells us, calm your anger and forget your rage. Amen to that. That would make a great bumper sticker. Uh, I saw a Protestant church marquee sign one time. I think I've said this before on the past, in the past on the show. Uh, the Protestant church marquee sign said, quote, anger is just one letter away from danger. Well said. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 through 27 states, If you are angry, let it be without sin. In other words, have just anger instead of unjust anger. Huh? If you are angry, let it be without sin. The sun must not go down on your wrath. Do not give the devil a chance to work on you. St. Basil the Great, great church father, says, Anger is a type of temporary madness. And there, of course, he's talking about unjust anger, because we've gone beyond the limits of human reason, as I said in my opening description of just versus unjust anger. St. Basil the Great, anger is a type of temporary madness, insanity, really. And James chapter 1, verses 19 and 26 says, "...let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. If a man who does not control his tongue imagines that he is devout," 
He is self-deceived, and his worship is pointless. So let's end this springboard topic, Jack, talking a little bit about anger with the tongue, huh? So I, I've listed some negatives in speech. This is good to hear during Lent, I think. Uh, negatives in speech. There's anger in speech. There's rash judgment in speech. There's bad moods and tones in speech. There's profanity in speech. Remember, these are ways that anger is linked to the human tongue. There's obscenity in speech, complaints in speech, gossip in speech, detraction in speech, self-praise in speech, uh, unkind witticisms or unkind jokes in speech. There's murmuring whispers, nods, or signs in speech. There's being argumentative in speech, and that's just a a list of some that I thought up of. Uh, But there's also positives in speech, we can't forget that as well, regarding the positives of the tongue that counteract unjust anger. There's charity in speech, there's humility in speech, there's honesty in speech, there's courtesy in speech. And sometimes, to be quite honest, there needs to be just a noble silence in speech, huh? a noble silence in speech. Sometimes we have to listen more than not, and that's very, very important. So the importance of anger, you know, uh, Psalm 52 says, uh, your tongue is like a sharpened razor with anger, you master of deceit. You love evil more than good, lies more than the truth. You love the destructive word, you tongue of deceit. Again, Psalm 52, verses 5 and 6. And I love what St. Faustina tells us, and I wrap up with this, Jack, uh, regarding the tongue. St. Faustina says, When I receive Jesus in Holy Communion, I ask him fervently to deign to heal my tongue, so that I would offend neither God nor neighbor by it any longer. I want my tongue to praise God without cease. Oh, how great are the faults committed by the tongue. The soul will not attain sanctity if it does not keep watch over its tongue. So there you have it, the importance of of anger as an emotion, a feeling or a passion, neutral in and of itself. Uh, how we are called to express only a righteous or just anger that is within proper limits of what's been done negatively to you, uh, and seek out just means that don't go beyond the limits of correcting what was done against you, as opposed to unrighteous or unjust anger, which exceeds those limits, and of course, how the tongue is tied into all of this. Once again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. We won't be taking your phone calls, but we're going to empty this mailbag. EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, for many, many decades now, EWTN has been broadcasting the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass live at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. And now you can even have a reminder sent straight to your inbox or straight to your mobile phone. Uh, you can simply log on to EWTN.com and click on uh, alerts. Uh, this is a very special mailbag edition, as the announcer man told you earlier, uh, of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. We're emptying out the mailbag. We won't be taking your calls today. 
Um, Angela writes in Father Wade. She says, uh, Father Wade has spoken about what we would call the last rites. There are four things to ask for at the time of death. Could you please provide me with this list? I'm going to be having surgery, and I want to make sure if anything goes wrong with the surgery and my death is imminent, that I can fully prepare for death by receiving all Holy Mother Church wishes to grant us at death. Great question. Great question. Yeah, the four parts of the last rites, quote-unquote, are the following. Uh, The anointing of the sick, which in and of itself per se is one of the seven sacraments. Number two is confession, provided the person feels they need to go. Definitely for mortal sin on their soul would they want to go. If they're not knowledgeable of mortal sin, they're still welcome to go to confess any venial sins they might have. Uh, Number three would be holy viaticum. And number four would be the apostolic pardon. And also peppered in there uh, would be the prayers of commendation for the dying, which are part of the ritual for the Holy Viaticum. So again, the four parts are the anointing of the sick, confession, Holy Viaticum, which is one's final Holy Communion, and the apostolic pardon. Remember, the apostolic pardon functions as a plenary indulgence, which is a complete wiping away of already forgiven mortal and venial sins, temporal punishment that might still be due at the time of one's death. So it's a great, great gift. It's what our Lord gave the good thief on that first Good Friday when he told the good thief, I tell you solemnly this day you will be with me in paradise. Holy Mother Church uses that Good Friday scriptural passage as a defense scripturally of the reality of the plenary indulgence. Again, a complete wiping away of any and all temporal punishment still due at the time of death for one's already forgiven mortal and venial sins. This is why it's important for one to want to go to confession uh, during the last rites. Even if you're not aware of any mortal sins, praise God, still make a confession of your venial sins, even if just categorically, which is a devotional confession, still a, a bona fide confession, but I call it a devotional confession, simply meaning you don't absolutely need it, but you want it uh, to get the extra graces from it. Uh, but it's still a regular confession. I just call it a devotional confession because only venial sins have been confessed at it. Um, Remember when I said uh, Holy Viaticum, One's Final Holy Communion, if you're able to receive it. What did I mean by that? Well, your end-of-life stage may be such that you're not able to receive Holy Viaticum. Well, Father Wade, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is, let's say you're in a car accident that you end up dying from 24 hours later, And during the 24 hours from the accident till the time of your death, you were in ICU in a comatose state, either natural or um, induced, and you have all kinds of medical apparatus on you, hoses and, and lines and whatnot, you're not able to receive Holy Viaticum. In that case, you could still receive the last rites, but it would not include Holy Viaticum. In other words, uh, you could still receive the anointing of the sick, uh, the priest could still uh, anoint, the, anoint you with the holy oils, um, even if not on the forehead and, and the hands per se, he could anoint another part of the body if the, if the forehead and the palms of the hands are not able to be gotten to because of injuries of the accident, caused by the accident. And in that place, the anointing of the sick doubles as confession. How awesome is that? It doubles as confession for both mortal and venial sin. And should the person recover, praise God, they're then bound to confess any mortal sins uh, that they know they have not yet confessed auricularly or audibly to the priest. Um, so so that's, uh, that's important, too. So um, the anointing of the sick, uh, 
confession would be included with the anointing of the sick in that circumstance. Holy Viaticum one would not be able to receive because of all the apparatus on you. You could still receive the apostolic pardon, and you would still uh, receive the prayers of commendation of the dying prayed over you, which includes the litany of the saints. How, uh, how beautiful is that? that uh, the litany of the saints has prayed over you as you're dying. One last point on these last rites. Um, you know, it shows forth beautifully how Holy Mother Church is there with us throughout the entire average of 79 years. Those are the latest longevity statistics or life expectancy statistics for those of us living here in the West. And, and when you look at all seven sacraments, you can see how the seven sacraments plug into each phase of life. So, for example, baptism equals infancy, huh? Holy Eucharist equals childhood, that is, around age seven, the age of reason, First Holy Communion time. Confirmation equals young adult, usually in this country between eighth grade and sophomore year in high school, eighth, ninth, or tenth grade. There are other dioceses that do it earlier, but that's, that's a norm in this country between eighth and tenth grade. Uh, matrimony and holy orders includes adulthood as a vocation and state in life. Um, and I would include as an aside there, along with singlehood or consecrated religious brother or sister. Um, and then confession regards penance and reconciliation throughout our life as a faithful pursuit of sanctifying grace while living out faithfully one's vocation, whether single, married, uh, consecrated religious, or as, as a priest. And then anointing of the sick, which could stand on its own or would be part of the last rites, with all four points of the last rite, of which the anointing of the sick is one. The anointing of the sick simply in, equals end-of-life stages <laughs> at the end of one's life, regardless of how old they are when they die. So there you see the, 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 the seven sacraments peppered throughout that average of 79 years, again, the latest life expectancy or longevity statistics. So uh, I, I like to think, you know, I, I love the old film noirs <laughs> from 1937 to 1957. You know, they've got great characterization. They've got great plots, whether there's suspense or mystery like the old Hitchcocks. Well, almost always, almost always in a film noir, you're going to have at least one scene of the operator, the telephone operator, usually a female, and she's it's sitting in front of the cord board or the operator's board, and she's connecting two people in this scene of the old film noir. And she usually has an Eastern accent, like, yeah, hang on a second, I'll connect you, all right? And it shows her pulling out one cord and then putting in another and putting this one down there, which was formerly up here. And then she takes the one that was down here and she plugs it in up there. I think you all know can, can, or can know visually what I'm talking about. Well, I think of the old cord board from an old black and white film noir, when I think of the seven sacraments and how they plug in to the entire phase or stage of these 79 years, look at it this way. Baptism, infancy, plug it in. Holy Eucharist, childhood, around age seven, First Holy Communion, plug it in down here. Confirmation, young adult, eighth grade or tenth grade, which would be what, age 13, 14, or 15, plug it in there. Holy orders and matrimony, plug it in there. And then confession, pursuit of sanctifying grace throughout one's life, plug it in here. And then lastly, the anointing of the sick, end of life stages at the time of one's death. Or just when one is ill, but I'm, but I'm regarding specifically about the cord board here, using that as imagery, talking about the end of life stages when the last rites are given, because that's what our, our mailbag questioner asked about specifically was the last rites and what the four parts were. But it's the end of life stages plugged in there. So you can picture that operator plugging in these big old-fashioned phone cords of, of the operator board, 
uh, and, and visually seeing how the seven sacraments plug into our life from our infancy all the way to the end of life when we die. And that's Holy Mother Church, the Bride of Christ, being an awesome mother there for us throughout all the stages of our life. You know, Jack, it's kind of funny. I had a, I kept saying operator board when I would say that publicly during one of my talks at my parish missions, and a woman came up to me after the mission, and she said, Father, I hope I'm not dating my age. I says, why? What do you mean? She says, well, I used to run one of those boards. <laughs> she says, they're not called an operator board, Father, although I'm sure everybody knew what you meant. They're called a cord board. So ever since then, Jack, I, I took her advice, and I called it a cord board. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Eddie writes in, he says, I'm a Catholic. My non-Catholic wife and I filed for an annulment to be married in the church. We did not wait for the annulment to be granted and were subsequently married outside of the church. What do I need to do to come back to the church? Great question. Great question. What you want to do is you want to try the best of your ability to live as though brother and sister without conjugal relations, because then at least you could receive Holy Eucharist, and Holy Confession on a regular basis. Even if the two of you live in the same house, maybe you have the mortgage together with this civil marriage, you own your vehicles together, you have a lot of finances tied up together, even the Church understands that. She understands that you're looking to get the marriage sanctified in the Church, sacramentalized in the Church, with the sacrament of matrimony per se. So hopefully you can at least separate into separate bedrooms, not live conjugally, but rather chastely as though brother and sister, and begin to receive the sacraments of Eucharist and confession regularly. Now, I presume that he is Catholic because he's the one asking the question. Uh, This civil wife, this second wife of his, may or may not be a Catholic, but even if she's not a Catholic, hopefully she'll cooperate with him, knowing that it enables him to get back to the sacraments, and hopefully she can attend Mass with him as well when he receives the Eucharist, and go to confession with him even, uh, when he goes to confession, even though she herself can't go, if she's not a Catholic, that is, because she can experience him, who she hopes to be sacramentalized to in a covenant of marriage soon enough, sooner rather than later, she can witness the great joy that these two sacraments bring him, and that's a beautiful thing. And who knows, it might lead to her becoming a convert to the Catholic faith if she's not already a, a Catholic herself. So that's the main thing you need to do, and then get in touch, of course. It sounds like you already have been, and you did the initial paperwork filing for the annulment um, to, to get the annulment process going to see if it goes through. And if indeed the marriage tribunal found that there is evidence that your first marriage was never, ever sacramental. You also have to be psychologically prepared that the tribunal could judge that your first marriage was sacramental. In that case, you have a right to appeal uh, and, and, and redo the process. Um, but, but that would be something that the tribunal would have to work with you on again further down the road if they judge the first time that your first marriage was sacramental. So a lot of people don't realize they have to be psychologically prepared for that. You know, the sacraments are serious business, and the Church esteems the seven sacraments very, very much because they are literal meetings with the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are the ordinary, not the extraordinary, but the ordinary channels to His grace in our life, His sanctifying grace, God's sanctifying grace to our life, to the Father, through the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So all that said, you should be prepared that it, it, there is the possibility that the first marriage will be upheld as sacramental. And if that's the case, indeed, you have a right to appeal, 
but you also have to realize that if that's the case and you want to remain being with the second person and still receive the sacraments, you have to continue to, to live uh, continually in a chaste manner. Uh, but that would be the advice I would give, and stay close with your advocate. Uh, every annulment case, uh, the layperson has an advocate at the, at the diocesan offices. Stay close to your advocate, uh, or excuse me, advocate at the, at the parish level that you're going through the parish that, that's helping you file for the annulment. You have a parish advocate. Stay close to that person. Once again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Right back to the mailbag we go. Philip would like to know, can it be the gravity, can it be that the gravity of a sin is lessened if it was committed due to an addiction? When confessing such a sin, should one mention the addiction to one's confessor? Yes and yes to that twofold question. So yes, um, the fact that the sin, the vice, is an addiction in the person's life per se can lessen the gravity of it to where what is always normally, objectively, mortally sinful is in this particular person— this man or this woman particularly, subjectively venial. So again, uh, addiction can change the gravity of a sin to where what is normally always considered uh, an objectively speaking mortal sin is subjectively, in this particular subject, a venial sin. Now, that said, this does not give the person, precisely because it's an addiction they have, carte blanche freedom to continue committing the act. No. In fact, in such a case, in such a scenario as be, as what's being described, the greater sin here is striving to not overcome the addiction, but rather growing lackadaisical with it. That would be the, the, the greater sin, okay? So to form an equitable judgment about the, the subject's moral responsibility and thus the gravity of a sin and to guide pastoral action— The Catechism is very clear in number 2352. Uh, One must take into account the affective immaturity. That's affective with an A, A A-F-F-E-C-T-I-V-E, meaning what? The affections. One must take into account the affections or the affective immaturity, force of acquired habit, conditions of anxiety, or other psychological or social factors that can lessen, if not reduced to a minimum, moral culpability, okay, moral gravity, moral guilt toward a sin. So uh, in that case, we want to be able to strive to overcome the addiction by setting up a plan and putting that plan in place to overcome the addiction by uh, spiritual helps, like regular spiritual direction and maybe confession more often, 
even if even if it's a confessional period where you didn't fall into the addiction, still be faithful to that regular confession period and tell the confessor, Father, even though I'm not aware of any mortal sins and I didn't fall this past confessional period of, of two weeks since my last confession, I didn't fall into the addictive behavior, I'm still here because I want to make a devotional confession, meaning a confession where just venial sins are confessed. And let the priest know that you had a two-week success period of not falling into the addiction. And maybe he'll offer you a few words of, of ongoing advice. So there needs to be spiritual helps like spiritual direction, regular confession, regular devotional confession even. Uh, which again is still a bona fide confession. We just call it devotional because there's no mortal sins confessed at it. It's just a, 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 a confession where venial sins are confessed at it. Um, also, temporal helps, like for example, if if the addiction is lustful behavior, uh, strive strive the temporal strive to carry out the temporal actions of of good eating habits, good exercise. Um, you know, things that you do physically and bodily that help keep you in a balance. These are good things to do temporally when striving to overcome the addiction. Uh, maybe, maybe one of the temporal things you're going to do, and kind of tied spiritually as well, is to enter a 12-step program for the addiction. You know, it's interesting that, that four major A organizations, anonymous organiza- organizations, have grown out of the original one, which is AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and what are the four that grew out of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, we have Narcotics Anonymous uh, for drug users, whether it's recreational drugs or prescription drug abuse, uh, Overeaters Anonymous, Sexaholics Anonymous, and um, uh, did I say Overeaters Anonymous? Uh, Narcotics, Overeating, uh, Sexaholics, and uh, Narcotics. Uh, Those four grew out of AA, which is a great thing. So now we have these five major anonymous organizations, and that's a great thing. But yes, uh, number 2352, uh, it's it's a section in the Catechism where offenses against chastity are talked about, but we can include here other offenses that go against one's body, like like um, drug abuse or, or alcohol abuse. But it's the section that talks about uh, offenses against chastity, such as lust or uh, masturbation or self-abuse, fornication, adultery, prostitution, pornography, where in that number 2352, um, that, that guide is given about forming an equitable judgment about the subject's moral responsibility and, and the guide to pastoral action for the confessor or the spiritual director to give, uh, the truth, again, that one must take into account the affective immaturity levels, the, that is, the emotional af- affections and their immaturity of the individual, force of acquired habit that's already solidly in place, um, conditions of anxiety or other psychological or social factors that can lessen, if not even reduce to a minimum, the moral culpability. Uh, Richard writes in, Dear Father Wade, Bishop Sheen's eventual beatification inspires me to write this letter. In one of his shows, he gives number, kind, and circumstance as the three things needed for a good confession. Listening to you, I only hear number and kind. What's the deal with that? (laughs) Have things changed? Do you have anything to say about circumstance? Yes, and I have mentioned circumstance in the past. I, I phrase it this way. It's any militating circumstance that makes the already mortal sin objectively more grave. So for mortal sins, we have to confess kind and approximate number. For venial sins, we're only bound to confess kind. You don't have to mention approximate number unless you want to. Uh, what does the Church mean by kind, quote-unquote, when we are to confess the kind of sin? She means this, simply name it, name it simply. 
there's no need to go into great or graphic detail about your sins. Now, that said, there is a third area that needs to be mentioned, as you say, Archbishop Fulton Sheen mentioned it, and, and I have too, you just haven't heard my particular talks or Open Line Tuesday episodes where I've mentioned it. Uh, it's kind and approximate number, and thirdly, if it's present, it may not be present, but if it is, thirdly, it's any militating circumstance that makes the already mortal sin objectively more grave. So for example, um, you confess one time a very serious physical altercation that actually sent the person to the hospital. Fine, kind and approximate number, you just said it. One physical altercation that is a fight that you were in that actually sent the other person to the hospital. But you know that the person you got in the fight with and had to go to the hospital because of the fight, you know it was your natural blood brother, okay? Gee, Jack, I hope none of my three brothers are listening to this right now. <laughs> but I'm being playful, of course. But, but uh, if you know the person was your natural blood brother, that makes the already mortal sin of a physical altercation that was so serious it actually sent the person to the hospital with injuries— the fact that it's your natural blood brother makes the already mortal sin objectively more grave. Notice that if the third militating circumstance is present, two things. Number one, you will know that it's present by having made a good what before you even walked into the confessional? A good examination of your conscience. You'll know what sins require you to mention the third militating circumstance if it's present. You'll know the ones where you don't have to mention it because it's not present. So this third militating circumstance that makes the already mortal sin objectively more grave, you will know if it's present by having made your good examination of conscience even before you walk into the confessional. Second point to be made about this third point of the militating circumstance, if it is present and you need to confess it, you confess it very simply, simply confess it, just like you would kind. There's no need to go into long, a long, dragged-out detail about it. If you want to go into a, a deep discussion about it and see how maybe the, the fight, the physical altercation, is actually rooted in a, in a personal deep anger you, you hold as, on a regular basis, then make an appointment for spiritual direction where you can talk about it in depth. Because confession is a sacrament. Confession is not a time for spiritual direction. That said, you do have the right to ask the, the confessor a, a few simple questions. He has the right to ask you a few simple questions of, of clarification about what you just confessed, if it's something he didn't quite understand. Uh, but beyond that, it shouldn't get into deep spiritual direction within the confessional. Why? Because confession is a sacrament. So again, if it's a venial sin, you only have to confess kind. If it's a mortal sin, you only have to confess kind and approximate number, unless through your good examination of conscience you have discerned that there's a militating circumstance present that makes the already mortal sin objectively more grave, you then mention that third militating circumstance, but even then you confess it simply, simply confess it, just like you would the kind, okay? So this reminds me of something I want to share here, the three acts of the penitent. So we just talked about what's required when you confess the sins. Now there's the three acts of, of the penitent. The, the, the three acts of the penitent are confession, contrition, and satisfaction, okay? Actually, we would list contrition first, because you want to be truly contrite or truly repentant 
before you actually step into the confessional. It, it's a contrition or repentance motivated by love of God and imperfect if it rests only on other motives like, like uh, you fear your reputation or what the priest is going to think of you. But it's a perfect contrition or a perfect repentance if you're sorry because you've offended God. It's imperfect if you're fearful or, re, or if you're repentant or contrite only because you fear the, the, the pains of hell. No, that would be imperfect contrition. Either one is, is fine for the validity of confession, imperfect contrition or perfect contrition, but hopefully you'll have perfect contrition or perfect repentance, and that is when you're sorry for your sins, first and foremost, because they've offended God, period. It's an imperfect contrition or imperfect repentance if you're sorry for your sins because you fear the, the pains of hell or the, the fires of purgatory or you fear your reputation of what the priest is going to think of you because you've made this confession, uh, that type of thing. Uh, number two, confession of the sin is the second act of the penitent, and we just talked about how to properly confess, kind and approximate number. And then thirdly, satisfaction, or the carrying out of the certain acts of penance which the confessor imposes upon the penitent to repair the damage caused by the sin. So those are the three acts of the penitent, contrition, confession, and satisfaction. This is uh, found in the Catechism of the Catholic Church in the section on, on confession. Um, and then there is a fourth one that would be really, really first on the list. I've already mentioned it when I talked about what's required when you confess venial and mortal sin. Uh, it's the examination of conscience. In the older theological textbooks, you'll see four acts of the penitent for, for a valid confession, and they're listed in this order. The examination of conscience, then contrition, imperfect or perfect contrition, then confession, then satisfaction. But in the current Universal Catechism, which came out in the early 90s, I think it came out in 1992, universally promulgated by now Pope uh, St. John Paul II, it lists, it lists the three acts of the penitent, and then the examination of conscience is given its own paragraph, where it's discussed separately. So whether you see an older listing of the four acts of the penitent or the newer listing with the three acts of the penitent, it's the same thing. It's just the examination of conscience that's listed first in the, in the list of four, because it's understood you would have made a good examination of your conscience before you walk into the confessional. Uh, again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Susan listens on Good Shepherd Radio in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and she writes in, Dear Father Menezes, there is a Catholic church who provides Eucharistic adoration online. Is this an appropriate way of experiencing adoration, as many can't physically attend and it would, be great, it would be a great option for them? And if so, would it be appropriate to be actively viewing it during abortion facility sidewalk prayer and counseling? Our group prays during the time that we are there, and this would be used in addition to verbal prayer. What are your thoughts? Great question. Well, in extraordinary times, like during a pandemic, you know, even for the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, which is a higher form of liturgical worship than Eucharistic adoration is, um, the, the, the adoration of the Eucharist is considered paraliturgical. The consecrated host came from a Mass, but adoration itself is not a Mass. Uh, we could also do that virtual. If you can do a higher form of liturgical prayer, like the Holy Sacrifice and Banquet of the Mass, virtually, because you're not able to get to it, then of course you could do a lower level of paraliturgical prayer, like Eucharistic adoration, virtual as well. That said, there's a hierarchy of preference here. If you're able to get to Mass, you should go to the Mass and not watch it virtually. If you're able to get to Eucharistic adoration, uh, to take part in it, 
literally in real life, face to face, you should and not do it virtually. So that answers that question. Whether or not you should do it while you're also doing sidewalk counseling, while uh, uh, peacefully protesting in front of an abortion clinic, you can, provided you have one pro-lifer in your group who's doing just that, adoring looking at the Eucharist and adoring. It wouldn't make sense to have the, the live stream of the Eucharistic adoration on your phone while you're also talking to, to women who are walking into the abortion clinic. That would defeat your purpose of quote-unquote adoration. But let's say there's 12 of you there uh, peacefully protesting. Some are just praying the rosary. Uh, some are giving actual verbal counsel to the women, etc. cetera. Uh, you should have at least one person who's simply doing the adoration, and then they could, they could switch off after a certain amount of time, maybe after 20 minutes to half an hour, switch off with somebody else who can now do the adoration, and then that first person who was doing the adoration now continues giving the sidewalk counseling. There's different ways you can do it, but I would say it's improper, even if you're doing it virtually, it's improper to be doing it but not be focused on it. You should be focused on it if you're going to do it virtually. If we're going to watch the Mass virtually, we should be focused on the virtual Mass. If we're going to do Eucharistic adoration virtually, we should be focused on it virtually. You know, if you're non-Catholic, if you're uh, one of our evangelical brothers and sisters and you're listening to the program, or perhaps you're uh, of no particular religious persuasion whatsoever, but you're curious about the Catholic Church, I've got a show for you called to communion. airs right here on EWTN Radio every day, Monday through Friday. 2 p.m. Eastern Time with Dr. David Anders and Tom Price, the most dynamic duo since Batman and Robin, right here on EWTN Radio. Uh, Milton writes in, Good afternoon. I realize that a bishop or archbishop's schedule is full, but do they take time out to do their basic priestly duties like offering the daily Mass or hearing confessions, etc.? I was just curious. Well, I would ho- certainly hope so, because they can. They can do that. And I don't answer that flippantly. I, I mean that sincerely. I-, I certainly hope they do, simply because they can. There's no rule in canon law saying that a bishop cannot celebrate a public mass, like a regular Sunday mass at his cathedral, or a, or a regular weekday mass that's public in the cathedral side chapel, or even in the cathedral itself, maybe the 1210 mass for workers, if it's a cathedral in the downtown area. I, I would hope that a bishop or archbishop or, or a cardinal archbishop would do that, maybe not daily, because common sense tells us that they have uh, important work to do in travels uh, to Rome and back and to different parishes for confirmations, for example, uh, also visitations to their different priests and their presbyterate. They want to go have quality time with the priest, not only as a group, uh, and, and different, what are called deaneries, different geographical locations within the one diocese, have a deanery meeting with his priest, but also visit the priests individually to foster that communion with his priest's son uh, that he's the, the bishop of. So my point is, there's a, there's a lot that a bishop is doing, let alone the desk work huh, of administration. Uh, even though he has a vicar general and other people, a chancellor, etc., he still has his own good portion of desk work. So while he has the desk work, while he has his travels to Rome for the Synod of Bishops uh, from his geographical location, while he has his deanery meetings, while he has his individual one-on-ones with his priests, while he has his confirmation masses, which he can also depute to the parish priest to conduct the sacrament of confirmation, while he has all these things, I would hope that at least once or twice a week he would celebrate a public mass so his people could see him 
him, especially in the Mater Ecclesia, the mother church of the diocese, which is the cathedral church, which is to be the icon of all other churches in the diocese. In other words, for example, how the liturgy is done at the cathedral should be the parent pattern of how the liturgy is carried out in the individual parish churches, the same due reverence, solemnity, and devotion that Vatican II talks about, the beautiful, noble simplicity of the Reformed Roman Rite, what Benedict XVI rightly calls the ordinary form, which is called to learn from the extraordinary form, uh, and the extraordinary form also called to learn from the ordinary form. So in his wonderful motu proprio from several years back, so, uh, you know, many, many cathedrals uh, are, are this, this is the cathedral church I'm talking about now, many of them are offering the extraordinary form, the so-called traditional Latin Mass, that's a beautiful thing, and I even know of two cases where the bishop himself celebrated the extraordinary form. So there's multiple options here is my point. And hopefully the bishop would celebrate, despite a busy schedule, he could incorporate into his regular daily Mass schedule a public Mass or two. That would be a wonderful thing. Kelly watches us on Facebook, and she says, Hi, Father. When we pray to Mary, does she take our prayers to God on our behalf, or can she answer our prayers? Great question. Uh, the consensus of theologians is that God is the one who always, always, always answers prayer. Mary is an intercessor on our behalf to the chief mediator before God the Father, who is his only begotten Son, who he sent into the, into the world, Jesus Christ, perfect God and perfect man. And thus, because he's God, uh, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, uh, Mary is the mother of God, and so she intercedes uh, on our behalf, uh, and we give her the greatest of veneration, what's known as hyperdulia, uh, we give her the greatest of veneration, where the uh, angels and saints receive dulia, which is veneration. Mary receives hyperdulia, which literally uh, it translates into the greatest of veneration. And God, the three divine persons, our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, receives latria, which is not veneration, but truly worship. Mary is not worshipped, the saints are not worshipped, the angels are not worshipped, they're venerated, dulia, and Mary receives hyperdulia, the greatest of veneration. But the three divine persons receive latria, which is not veneration, it's worship, quote, end quote, latria equals worship. And through our worship of God, even through the mediation of, of the saints uh, interceding for us, including the Blessed Mother, uh, through their intercession, it's still God who answers prayers. Uh, but who knows? I'd like to think that God would turn to his mother and say, Mom, what do you think? Should I answer this one? <laughs> and if she says yes, he's going to listen to his mother. And I say that, you know, playfully. But I think Mary, uh, as, as, as uh, the intercessor mother of God, has great weight, we could say, before God. And during this year of St. Joseph, let us not forget the term that's often applied to St. Joseph, not officially, but pietistically in the teachings of the Church, and that is protodulia. So hyperdulia is the greatest of veneration, protodulia is the first of veneration, and then dulia is veneration. So Mary receives the greatest of veneration, after her comes Joseph, the first of veneration. He's first of all the angels and saints who are other than Mary. 
and then all the angels and saints receive veneration. So great question. Thank you so much. Uh, and then Kelly also wanted to know, she said, I was told that it was a sin for getting rebaptized. I was away from the church in my 20s and 30s. My husband and I went to a non-denominational church where we were baptized then. Uh, a while back, uh, someone said it was a sin to do that. And when I went to reconciliation and told the priest about it, he also said it was a sin. Could you clarify? Yeah, it's a sin insofar as you will it, because you wanted to denounce the prior baptism, which was in the Catholic faith, which you probably received as an infant. Uh, that would be wrong to do. But if you didn't do it willfully or with such malicious intent, remember to sin, you have to will it. I would say that you got, quote-unquote, rebaptized in the Protestant Church after years of having left the Catholic Church. I would say you did it out of ignorance. You didn't do it out of malice. And remember, in order to sin, you have to you have to will it maliciously or not. I don't think you necessarily willed it. You just, or maybe you did. I don't know. But but I, my point is that to sin, you have to will it. But it sounds like you and your husband acted in ignorance more than anything else. And sins of ignorance are real, just like sins of, of, of the will are, are real. With sins of the will, you will to do this or that. Um, with sins of ignorance, you do the action, but you don't know it's necessarily sinful, or you don't know it's sinful at all. The, the greater... The greater thing that's worth mentioning here is that it's impossible, literally, to be quote-unquote re-baptized. You're either baptized or not. This is why if a Protestant baptism, say in the Presbyterian Church, the Methodist Church, the Baptist Church, if it's a valid baptism, and you're converting later to the Catholic Church, and you can prove reasonably so that you were baptized in the Protestant Church with a valid Trinitarian formula, with a three-time pouring or the three-time immersion in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the Catholic Church will accept that prior Protestant baptism. So at the Easter Vigil, you will be confirmed, and you will receive Holy Communion, First Holy Communion, Eucharist, but you will not be baptized. There's no need to be baptized, because there is no such thing as a, as a rebaptism. Now, let's say you were you're, you were baptized in the in the Protestant Church. You don't know for certain what the formulary was. You have no written out certificate from it from however many years back. You just vaguely remember being baptized. Well, in that case, your your Catholic pastor, who whose parish you're entering the Catholic Church under, he would probably baptize you conditionally at the Easter Vigil, or probably privately before the Easter Vigil, even. And what that simply means is he would preface the three-time Trinitarian formula with these words, if you are not already baptized, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you are already baptized, what he just did in the Catholic Church prior to the Easter Vigil privately took no effect. But if that first Protestant baptism was indeed invalid because of a wrong formulary in honor of the three divine persons, then what he just did privately to you before the Easter Vigil was valid. So you can only be baptized once. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. During this Lenten season, may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners. And during this year of St. Joseph, St. Joseph, terror of demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for carving a little time out of your Tuesday. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until then, God bless. <laughs>